0: Hi, this is Tom Salome of Device Talks. Welcome to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Surgical robotics presents an enormous opportunity for companies. There are surgeon shortages, sporadic healthcare, and miraculous technological advancement in both robotics and communications. So to understand where this sector is headed, we invited senior executives from Intuitive to share their company's impressive story. Change is coming. Consider these upcoming episodes to be guideposts for the future to follow. Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Our guest today is David Robinson. David is vice president of multi-port design engineering at Intuitive, and our conversation varied wide a bit. We talked a bit about the intricacies of developing a robotic surgical stapler. We talked about the importance of creating a, a table for the Da Vinci system that that helps surgeons perform the procedures. And of course, we talked about the evolution. Of the multi port design and, uh, and the intricacies that, uh, that requires and the direction to some extent where that's headed. David couldn't share too much. So uh, we'll also talk a bit about David's background, which is really interesting. He did, uh, his first job in engineering was, uh, working on the Segway device, which was kind of cool. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with David Robinson. Once again, he's vice president of multi port design engineering at Intuitive Surgical. But before we begin this episode, I want to make sure you know about Device Talks West. It's happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center, not too far from Intuitive. We'll have a lot of discussions centered around surgical robotics. We'll have uh, discussions centered around robotics outside of surgical robotics because we'll be working with our partners at the Robot Report on additional conferences, so uh, keep an eye out for details about Device Talks West. Once again, it's happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Certainly, we'll hope to have great representation from Intuitive as well. All right, let's get this podcast started. Well, David Robinson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it.
0: I'm excited to uh, hear about your uh, your work at Intuitive. Uh, we've got a few key projects that you've been working on and, and continue to work on. But before that, uh, I'd love to uh, find out a little bit about our guests and how they found their way into the medical device industry and Intuitive specifically. Let's start at your beginning. How did you uh, first become an engineer or just decide you wanted to be an engineer?
1: Yeah, well, I started in, in college, I wanted to... Uh, thought I wanted to become a physicist and an industrial designer. So I actually did a dual major. and, uh, And so I started there. My dad was actually really smart. And he said, how about we work on a couple of classes that would allow you to go in multiple directions? And Anyway, I I quickly found out that I wasn't an industrial designer, (laughs) although my dad was a mathematician, my mom was a musician, and so it was kind of a merging of science and art. you think I, I might have some of that in me. And I also wasn't a physicist because I got to see exactly where the world of physics was going, and what I loved about physics was actually the essentially the first couple of years of physics. <laughs> and, uh, and so I um, talked to an advisor at uh, my university. I went to Brigham Young University for an undergrad. And I talked to him for a little while. And he said, boy, it sure sounds like engineering might be something you'd be interested in. And so I was like, great, what's that? <laughs> <And> <laughs> so I was taking some of the basic courses for engineering anyway and ended up loving them. And thinking, this is what I want to do. There was like a, you know, one of those series where they bring in people from industry and talk about uh, different things they do in engineering. And uh, and I decided, I think I'm going to pursue this. This sounds fantastic. That's great. And literally my first semester, I figured it out and said, I'm going to do this and move forward with it. And so I finished up my undergraduate in mechanical engineering and then I uh, had an opportunity to go to graduate school with the intent that I actually thought I was going to become a professor because my dad was a professor. And I thought, wouldn't that be great? Because I I like the way what he does, this mix of teaching and this mix of doing research and the university campus was great. And I thought it was a just a really wonderful thing to pursue. And so I ended up going to... Massachusetts Institute of Technology for my master's and my PhD, where I got to work on sort of the beginnings of uh, 3D printing and then uh, to a chance to work with uh, legged robots at MIT, walking and running robots. And it was a great experience. But as I got close to graduation, I thought about, okay, do I want to become a professor? My favorite professors were those that had some level of industry experience. That makes sense. And so I said, How about I go get a few years of industry experience before I become a professor? And then we'll see where that goes. So, so you're, I had you're a still plan. Working on
0: that. You're still working on that part, getting a few years,
1: huh? Yes. I'm still getting a <laughs> few years in. That's right. Let's see. I guess I'm 23 years in now. i <laughs> working on my experience.
0: You're going to be a great professor with all this experience. <laughs> so, uh, in your first job, I saw work for Dean Kamen on the Segway project up in Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm not too far away from that. I'm in Amesbury, Massachusetts. How did you come to get hooked up with that project? And what is that whole experience like? From what I've heard, it's like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. It's just this design playland for engineers.
1: That's interesting. I, I don't know that it's a design playland, um, <laughs> it's, but it did feel like there was a tremendous opportunity to do really good work there. Yeah, And I had an opportunity where one of the thesis advisors that I was working with uh, sent me a job description that he got from a former student, and it looked interesting, and I applied for the position. And uh, the segue was totally in stealth mode at the time. And I ended up getting hired on that particular project and had a great experience Working on things that uh, that was brand new to me that that were brand new to me, and you know there was motors and batteries, but also safety systems and and working in a broader team was actually something that was uh, very fascinating and interesting. So got to work on the very first Segway release, um, you know, codenamed Ginger, and uh, sure.
0: <laughs> I forgot about that.
1: Yeah. We had to actually put our prototypes in boxes and wheel them down to our test track. And there were people that were yelling at us out the windows in Manchester, New Hampshire, like, is that ginger in there? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So what lesson did you
0: take away from working with that group? It sounds like uh, collaboration was was a key part. And uh, I guess secrecy and stealth ain't so, so bad either. But what were some key takeaways?
1: Well, some key takeaways from my Segway experience was the people that you work with are really important. Okay, And I got to work with some of the coolest and greatest engineers there. And believing in the mission is also really important. Interestingly, I didn't actually get to see the prototype before I was hired because it was in such a stealth mode. And so I had to make my decision off of a a few things other than what am I going to be working on? But I knew it was going to be engineering and I knew it was going to be a, a startup like experience. And I learned a lot about product development Mm -hmm. and what it means to make decisions about making a product that's never been designed before.
0: That's great. And did did you know it was a transportation uh, device or were you as blind as the rest of us?
1: No, I knew it was a transportation device, Okay, but that was as far as it got.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) You went from there, if I'm reading your LinkedIn correctly, to directly to Intuitive. How did that opportunity become available to you? And what was appealing about uh, about joining Intuitive? And this would have been in 2007.
1: Right. So actually, in 2000, when I was graduating with my PhD, there were two serious offers that I was considering. One was from Segway, and the other was from Intuitive Surgical. Oh, interesting. Yeah, And uh, due to various reasons like location and timing of trying to manage two career households and and whatnot, I ended up going to Segway. But the person who offered me a job then, Sal Brogna, he stayed in contact with me for that whole time. And every once in a while, he'd just kind of ping me and say, how are you doing? What what are you up to? Are you interested? And in 2006, I get a call from him saying, all right, enough games. It's time that you come to intuitive. I have a position that you need to fill and I came to intuitive for an interview thinking, "Okay, I'm just going to see what they have to say." He plops down a job offer and and just like gives an immediate hard sell and I was like, "Whoa, this is serious." And I think about this a lot and I realized that if I didn't take this opportunity that I was going to regret it for the rest of my life.
0: Well, that's great. Did you, did you have a chance to to call, were you married at the time, to call your, your wife and make sure it was okay to move across the country? Or
1: Well, I actually didn't accept right that very second. I, <laughs> uh, I, I did say, hey, I got to talk to somebody first. We got to figure <laughs> out how this all works. That's so, great. But we moved from the East Coast to Silicon Valley and, uh, and start our life in Silicon Valley working at Intuitive Surgical.
0: That's terrific. What was it about, I mean, you you applied initially in 2000 and 2007. I mean, I'm guessing I know what it was that drew you to intuitive surgical, but what was it? Was it the mission? Was it just the opportunity to create something brand new? What was primary in in leading you to take that job off or other than the arm twisting that you were apparently having to endure at the time?
1: (laughs) Well, it had to do with the opportunity of using my engineering skills to Work on something that was really meaningful to and directly meaningful to people. And at one point, I had considered becoming a physician, and, uh, and I thought, "What? Yeah, why don't why don't I take this opportunity and directly impact people's lives?" I mean, it's not it's not as direct as a physician, but it's very close. And I just thought that that was going to be a nice. Um, amalgamation of what I wanted to do with my life and the skill set that I had.
0: So it worked out great. Yeah. So you're currently vice president of, of Multiport design engineering, but what were some of the earlier projects that you, you worked on at intuitive? I understand you had some work uh, involvement in developing the stapler and also some work with the table, both of which have sort of yeah. interest, interesting histories. Walk us through some of the, some of the uh, projects you've been uh, part of.
1: The very first one was the SI system that uh, got released in 2009 did some software releases for the S system before that and uh, so I was leading what is called the systems analysis group which is the the team writing the algorithms both for nominal functionality of what the system's supposed to do and then all the the safety systems around when things don't go right how to catch that and, and whatnot and so that was the team that I was asked to lead so from the SI I was asked to work on the initial stapler product and then the xi patient cart was the the next project and from there it's like a variety of different uh instruments uh a variety of of different projects like like you mentioned the the table we also worked on the x system and sp and even some on uh, ion as well mm-hmm. so and uh that's a brief history. If, uh,
0: <laughs> what are some of the unique challenges to developing a, a robotic surgical stapler? I, thinking about it initially, I, I wouldn't see it as being that complex a project, but I know there were some some challenges there that had to be overcome. What were some of the things you had to overcome to put that
1: together? Well, for the most part, the team that started it had never worked on surgical staplers before. And so just understanding the application, Application and sort of the industry standard because we weren't the first ones to make a surgical stapler. Uh, sure. They had been in the industry for, I'm going to get this number wrong, but 20 some odd years before we decided to put it onto the robot. And the executive leadership team at the time at Intuitive felt like surgical stapling was a critical opportunity for Intuitive to pursue so that we could better serve our customers in particularly general surgery. But things like how much articulation should it have? How much precision does it need? How much clamping force do you need? How do you do that around an articulating wrist? How much precision does the uh, does the instrument actually need as you're placing it onto tissue? So, some of those, I mean, it's it sounds like uh, we could just figure those out quickly, but working with our clinical engineering teams and our um, surgical partners at the time, and we were able to figure out a lot of those those key requirements, not necessarily figure out how to solve all of them, but we knew what we were going for.
0: So what was some of the challenges of the stapler just, does it require more, and I've never... Staple tissue myself. So I don't know. But is it something that required more of a of a feel than even cutting or or suturing using the the stapler? What was the disconnect between getting a robotic surgical stapler to perform as well as a traditional stapler, which you, as you said, have been around for a couple of decades?
1: Well, part of this has to do with one of the requirements that we started off from the beginning is that it was going to be a fully articulating stapler. Okay. And so you actually require a lot of force. To go around a fairly substantial corner, I should say, torque to clamp the tissue in order to hold the tissue in place, to place the staples and to transect the tissue. Our biggest challenge was getting that torque around a, for all intents and purposes, 60 degree bend and clamp the, the tissue in place. So that, that was, I would say, at the beginning, that was one of our biggest challenges. Hmm.
0: I can understand that being a challenge, sure. I didn't realize it had that that articulation ability. So let's move on to to something else, which I really haven't given much thought, the table. That's something that you've worked on as well. What is special about the table that's used with the intuitive system? What what does it need to do other than just give someone a a place to lie down? (laughs) Because it does so much more.
1: Well, the interesting thing about a surgical table is that the patient lies on the table, but it's not necessarily that they're lying flat. Um, It's that the the patient may be tilted. The technical term is in Trendelenburg, a reverse Trendelenburg, or you'll tilt to the side, and that allows a surgeon better access to the anatomy, and it also allows them the opportunity to let gravity move the, the larger organs out of the way. So getting a table to move around isn't the challenge having a surgical robot attached to a patient who is laying on the table move around, that's the challenge is that you have to track the patient very, very uh, closely. And, you know, one of the challenges that we ended up having was uh, making sure that our our joints had low enough forces so that as the, the patient was moving, that you wouldn't impose any excess force to the body wall of the patient as it's moving around and as with any product development though it just it felt like every little step that we took along the way we discovered something new like we had to release the brakes of our system in a very careful way to minimize the amount of motion that when somebody wanted to initiate the table moving you didn't want the body to suddenly move from the robot and so we had to carefully release energy in a, in a slow manner. And the interesting thing about this whole idea of doing robotic surgery and table motion is that most surgeons didn't think that it would be possible, even though they would do it in open surgery, or they would do it in laparoscopic surgery because they go, Oh, clearly once you're docked the robot to the patient, you're fixed. You can't move. And, uh, and so they would ask for certain devices like a fan retractor to move the small bowel out of the way. And I don't know how many times I went to a surgery or talked to even a cl- clinical sales representative where they would say, could you give us this instrument? And at the time I was thinking, every time that you ask a question, you are identifying a problem. And when you identify the problem, then you can start thinking of the solution. and. You know, you just ask something simple like, what would you do in that lap or open surgery? They go, oh, I would move the table. But clearly you can't do that. So you go, why don't we try to partner with somebody that already has a table and then work with them and design our system so that it could do that capability. And uh, so anyway, that that was a, a very exciting project. And it drove a lot of requirements into the XI system in order to make table motion a reality.
0: So, so is the table moving in conjunction, or the, are the arms moving in conjunction with the table? Is that the is that the solution? Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. So, just an automatic adjustment?
1: Well, automatic is a um, <laughs> is that's a big word. But okay. <laughs> I, I I would say that the system and the table communicate to each other and are able to adjust, but you need to have. The right amount of give between the patient and the robot, so that as it moves, like I said, you don't put extra force onto the patient. And so, sure. yes, there, there's adjustments that happen while you are going.
0: Great. So let's talk about uh, your focus now on, on multiport. So the, the most current system is the Xi, which you, you mentioned a few times. When did you first begin working on the multiport system, and what have the iterative change has been of that system over the, since you've begun working on it. What are you, what are you striving for? Cause I know intuitive is also working on the single port systems and the ion and, and you've got different surgical systems that are performing surgeries or procedures differently. What are you trying to do with the multi port system that you maybe haven't been able to do it within the past?
1: Well so just let me just be clear about some vernacular here. So multiport is the name or the architecture that we have been using since the beginning of intuitive surgical meaning okay. that you take a camera, you have a certain number of small ports where you have an endoscope and instruments that go through the patient ports. So in 1999 when the first da Vinci system was launched, that was a multiport robot. And so, you know, you have the DaVinci original, you have the DaVinci S, you have the DaVinci SI, DaVinci XI was the next one, 2014. And then 2017, we took certain parts of the architecture of the DaVinci XI and uh, put it onto another multi-port robot called the DaVinci X. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Right. So that has been our flagship product since the beginning of the company's founding.
0: How does the DaVinci X differ from the DaVinci Xi, and and what are you striving to accomplish with the next system? I know there was expectation that a new multi-port system would be released in 2023. I think it was stated that that's likely not going to happen at an earlier call, an analyst call. So, what are you currently working with or toward on the multi-port
1: system? I, I see your your question. So, the reality is we mm-hmm. have been working on improving and adding to and filling out the multi-port ecosystem since we launched the product in 2014. And because in 2014, we didn't have a stapler. We didn't have a vessel sealer. I don't think we had a a suction irrigator. There were certain aspects of our vision system that needed refinement. And we have continued to add uh, to that and refined our software. We added the table after Da Vinci Xi was launched, and we've changed our our vision system. And so, you know, our ability to to do surgery has over the last decade has continued to get better and better and better. And so, I think your question is though, when's the next big thing? Um, <laughs> say, I would actually say that we've been we've been launching big things. Like almost every year since since we launched XI and we continue to work on and refine where we're going to go next. And I would even say we're even working on what's next, next. As we move along, clearly, I learned from my experience at Segway that you don't talk about uh, the specifics <laughs> of
0: those details, and I understand. And like, and I, and I guess I, it was a poorly worded question. My my thinking is that you've already had a multi-port system and you've had it since the start, sure. right? You are improving the elements around it, but like, where do you go from here to to continue to improve it? Do you you add uh, instruments? Do you do you improve the arms? Do you you are adding the other elements, the table, and you mentioned the uh, the visualization as intuitive, sort of. Mm-hmm rolls out ION and has and single port and other sort of different systems that perform procedures differently. What do you continue to look toward improving the multi-port system? Because you've got one that works and works pretty well and and it's selling, but where can you go from here?
1: Well, there's an assumption that just because we release a product that it's done. I I mean, there are so many um, products that just you understand where the weaknesses are Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, people don't usually try to highlight your weaknesses, but that's one of the, our cultural things that we do is like, we critically look at our product and we say, where did we succeed and where are we falling short and what could we do differently? And surgeons are not shy at all about telling us uh, where we got it wrong. So is there, <laughs> maybe I can just give a, you know, like, is there a, a single example that I can think of? Well, let me give you one on stapling because stapling was really interesting in that we designed stapling to be used primarily for a procedure called low anterior resection, which is a procedure in which there is a tumor in the large intestine somewhere lower in the abdomen. And so the idea there was for this stapler was to go down there and be able to transect and then to transect and and take the cancerous tissue out and then uh, then reconstruct and you know in comparison to something like a a suture you know like a needle driver, a stapler is a very very big device hmm. and so um as we started watching surgeons using this what we realized is we gave them this articulating capability. And now they had more control than they did in lab. And so they placed and drove this, what felt like a, you know, an 18 wheeler in comparison to a Porsche driving through the, the patient's anatomy, mm-hmm. but they were driving it with such great care and precision that we had to rethink our own algorithms of how They're they're driving it more precisely than what we thought that they would do so. And so then we had to rethink our own way of delivering that capability to them, especially as the stapler started getting used in other areas of the body. And like, for example, in a thoracic case where you are, you know, in the chest, very tight cavities, very important key vessels that you have to work a stapler around. And and we were so glad that we had added increased precision and increased capability in those very, very tight spots. So as people are using our devices, we're recognizing abilities to improve the, its own capability.
0: And can you speak to the, and, and if you can't, that's fine, but can you speak to when the next version May come out. Will it have a different name, or is it just it just an updated version of the of the DaVinci X? What does the timing look like on that? Yeah.
1: So yeah, I mean, talk, talking about when things get released and, sure. and whatnot, that's not my role, so <laughs> I, I I won't uh, I won't talk about that. And, the, and you know, there's fine. a bunch of and you have to recognize in in a in a regulated industry, there's a bunch of things that are under your control, and there's a bunch of things that are not you control the things that are under your control. And I mean, it's actually something that's very exciting in the medical industry is you get to work with regulated bodies. And at first I was very scared of it, but I I have actually found that the people that I get to work with, like in the FDA and and talk to, they do a good job. Like they, they, and they are pushing the industry in the right direction. And, uh, you know, another example of this is, when we were launching the uh, the si there was a requirement that the fda had been talking about for a while but we hadn't really fully understood called a human factors evaluation and we thought it was uh, what we had been doing but you know they said no you're you're really not getting it you need to do this very specific test where you bring in external surgeons and you put them in the very challenging situations that you say that you have mitigated that they won't run into challenges. And they were like, Whoa, that's a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the time, it was very challenging because, you know, you're, you're kind of at the 11th hour of your product design and development cycle, and you have this very huge test that, first of all, you have to understand what it means, and second, you have to organize it and plan it. And we had the opportunity to learn about it firsthand, and it ended up being fantastic. And now we have a very solid human factors team that knows how to do this work that early in the product development cycle we are bringing in surgeons and and looking at things and and so we've been able to take something that was very unpredictable at the end and now it's uh, it's a lot more predictable
0: that's great a uh, final question i mean where you you started at intuitive in 2007 you and here today has th- have things played out as you uh anticipated when you signed that contract as the area uh, has the field developed as you thought it would or have you achieved more than you uh you had anticipated
1: it's way better than I anticipated. Really? Yeah. I came here hoping that we could have some impact in the marketplace and uh, we could affect a few people's lives. I think our surgical, you know, like our average rate right now is about 2 million procedures plus per year that are happening. And that's million is a big number. I just feel grateful that uh, I am able to participate in this. And one of the best things that has happened to me is like, if I'm wearing some intuitive gear or something like that, I have intuitive on my shirt, strangers will come up to me and talk to me. And they'll tell me their story of how they were impacted by their disease, by the surgery. And sometimes you just get a random hug. And it's fantastic. That's great. And it, I look back on my experience at Intuitive, and I am just very humbled and grateful. Moving forward, though, I'm actually just as excited now as when I started at Intuitive. And I am looking forward to the next many years of continued impact into the marketplace of improving patient care and it, giving the tools to surgeons and caregivers so that they can heal to the best of their ability. So I'm super excited to be here.
0: That's great. Well, it's a great story. I'm, I'm sure you're missing the uh, the winners in Manchester, New Hampshire, but it sounds <laughs> like you found a good spot for yourself. So David, thank you for joining us on the
1: podcast. Great. Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate it.
0: Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Intuitive Talks Podcast. Hope you're a subscriber to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you'll get future episodes of Intuitive Talks as well as Stryker Talks, Boston Scientific Talks, the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, and soon our Abbott Talks Podcast. Lots of great medical device content coming through that podcast channel. So go to any major podcast application, Google, Spotify, Amazon. Subscribe, like, or follow, and again, you'll have future episodes sent directly to you. Do me a favor and share this episode on social media, and when you do, connect with me. I am Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. Please connect with Device Talks and with Intuitive. be great to uh, get a conversation going around your social media post. That's it. Once again, don't forget to join us at Device Talks West. It's happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. We'll be putting up an agenda probably uh, within a month, but we've got some uh, great keynotes lined up, which uh, including some uh, very familiar names and faces. So stay tuned. And thanks again for listening to this episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast. Take care, everybody.